Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome back, Linen Upside Podcast. Today is January, I think it's a Wednesday, right? It's Wednesday. Wednesday, that sounds about right. Uh, it's around 4 o'clock something Eastern Time. I'm Mike Prada. Ben Epstein cannot be with us today. He's taking a break. But in his place, we have a different Ben. A Ben that's here to talk about the best team in the NBA right now. The hottest Second. team in the Hottest team in the NBA right now, the Utah Jazz. It's Ben Dowsett. He has a site called Jazz Film Room, a Patreon page where he goes in-depth on the Utah Jazz. He's a longtime writer for a lot of different websites on Utah. Longtime Jazz fan as well. Uh, and also has written for GQ. And you said one other one that I forget. Uh, Athletic, Athletic, Forbes, SB Nation. I've written in lots of places. Yeah. Ben Dowsett, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm doing I'm doing great. It's great to have you. We are talking in between the Knicks victory and I believe they played Dallas by the time you heard this, but Donovan Mitchell's out. No the, Mitchell. I can't remember the last time the Jazz lost the game. It's been what, eight wins in a row, nine wins in a row? It was the last time they played the Knicks, actually. Uh before that. Yeah, nine. So it's nine game winning streak right now. And yeah, the Knicks before that were the where they led by eighteen and then lost. And in this game, they trailed by 15 and won. So yeah, it was actually kind of a uh, mirror opposite of the last New York game. They were up 18 in the first half of that game and then just kind of stopped trying and let it go. And New York didn't stop trying. They were really tired. Austin Rivers talked even before the game about how tight they were on the last game of a road trip. We all know about that type of thing. So, it, but yeah, they turned it around pretty hard. I think their second half defensive rating against the Knicks was like 60 something or 70 something. Yeah. That fourth quarter was uh, some scary stuff uh, where it just sort of all clicked. Um, but Utah is in this position. Utah is also famously a team that believes it is not covered appropriately, uh, a market that feels like they do not get a lot of respect. Um, and one of the things we do on the show is, look, we're going to talk about these teams with the respect that they deserve, with people who really know what, what the psychology, not just of the team, but of the fan base is. So we're going to give the Utah Jazz the respect they deserve. I hope Utah fans are okay with that. I, th- I think your comments about us needing more respect are very disrespectful, personally. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is a that complex is, for us. <laughs> that is something that I believe a jazz fan would talk I would, about. I would say that. Yeah, yeah. no, that it's it's a complex for us. It's a real thing. I fall victim to it as much as anyone. We we don't even deny it at this point, I don't think. Where do you think it comes from? Um, I mean, like there's some people that try and connect it to like the background of this state and, you know, a group that wasn't necessarily wanted in some places and things like that. I'm not going to go that far. I don't belong to that group anyway. So, uh, but like... I don't know. I really don't know. I've I've never totally known, but like you get some of the same stuff in like, in terms of like, you know, players talk about the the fans in the building, not the racism. That's a different thing, but just about the raw noise levels and just like the general angst level you hear guys say, like, it's just, 
it's louder and more angsty here than it is in most other places. I don't, I, I really can't get to the bottom of why I've never quite understood it. And that has always been a home court advantage for the jazz, but of course that is not really a home court advantage this year because there are fewer fans, although they are, they do have some fans. They're one of the teams that have fans and yet they're still playing it as well. Um, and so I pose it to you, Ben Dowsett, who watches every jazz game once, twice, three times, however many times you do it. What do you think is the biggest story of this Utah jazz season? That's a very good question. Okay. And this is, this gives me a chance to, uh, I told you before that I, I was, I have a topic that I've been thinking about for a while. I was thinking about writing it at a bigger outlet. I'm probably going to write it on jazz film room soon and we'll preview it here for everyone who gets to listen to your, okay. to your folks. And this is one that I'm not the first person to totally think about this jazz radio voice. David Locke deserves some credit here, who, by the way, congrats to David. His network just sold today. I feel like I should give him that. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah. The lockdown uh, podcast network for home to a lot of friends of ours. Oh yeah. A ton. And David's done incredibly hard work. Congrats to him. Um, uh, one, David was the first person to make slight connections, at least between the current jazz and recent iterations we've seen of the Houston Rockets. Uh, and I have taken that connection a little further. I think that the jazz are very, very specifically emulating two recent powerhouses in the NBA, those Houston Rockets and the team that they constantly lost to the Golden State Warriors. I think they're doing so in a couple of ways. Uh, the first and the one that's a simplest comparison directly. I hope people don't mind going straight into like some stats and some some hardcore oh, stuff. No, here. Man, is that... This is why we brought you on. Nice. All right. Cool. Uh, the Jazz are currently accepting or attempting 45 percent of their shots as three pointers. It's really 44.8, but I'll round up 45 percent of their shots as three pointers per cleaning the glass. Excellent site. Ben Falk. Yeah, everyone should look at it. Um that is the highest number in the league currently. And not only that, it is one of the highest numbers in the history of the league, or at least in the, the history where we have play-by-play tracking, which I think for on, on cleaning the glasses back to like 03 or so. The teams going back to 03 that have shot a higher percentage of their shots as threes than the current Utah Jazz are. You ready for the list, Mike? It's probably what, just the, the Rockets with Harden. It's just the Rockets three times. The 1920 Rockets, the 1819 Rockets, and the 1718 Rockets. Those are the only teams that have ever shot a higher proportion of their th- of their shots as threes than the current Utah Jazz. Yeah, it's so funny you make that comparison because when you watch the way they get those shots, they look so different. Oh, it's very different. And that was that's going to be part of what I'm writing about is I'm talking 10,000 foot, very broad here. Like what the result is, it looks very much like those teams, the way they're getting there, completely different. The Jazz don't have anyone like a Harden or a Steph Curry or a Draymond Green or a Kevin Durant, any of those guys. They're doing it very, very differently. And in fact, the comparison some others have gone to is the Spurs. Those, you know, like the 14 Spurs, not as good as them, obviously, but like that style you could maybe even infuse that in there a little too although the indicators that i've seen point towards these i got one more for you if you're interested that really ties me Mm -hmm. to the warriors so the other area where the if you actually look the jazz's half court offense has been relatively mediocre as of a couple days ago i didn't haven't checked since last night but i think it was like 10th or 11th 12th maybe Mm -hmm. uh not not elite but their overall offense is elite. I think it's fourth in the NBA right now. The reason is they're the best team in the league by far in transition. They're creating, so per, again, per cleaning the glass, great resource. They have, uh, uh, CTG has a points added per 100 possessions in transition stat, basically a combination of how frequently are you running and how effective are you when you do it. The Jazz are the most efficient team in the league and 
they don't run the most often, but they run, I think it's slightly above average or maybe slightly below average, mm-hmm. which equals out to by far the most points added in the league, 4.7 as of today on cleaning the glass. Second place for that stat is 3.9. There's a big gulf between the Jazz and the next most uh, impactful transition team in the league. And I went back and looked which other teams have held that large of an advantage over their peers in terms of generating in transition. The only answer is the Warriors. The Warriors in 14-15 were plus 5.4 in uh, the only team to go over the five mark since because the league has actually kind of, I know I'm sure you know this, Mike, the league has sort of limited how much transition it allows these days. Uh, well, the, it, yeah, it's sort of within a, the last five years or so. It's also the, the the line between what is considered a transition bucket and what is that not too. is just completely blurred. So it's I think that sort of makes those stats interesting, but also tough to sort of say there's a big trend one way or the other. Right. That's why I why you know what? Sorry, no, go ahead. No, that's why I actually look at more at like sort of how do you score off makes versus misses because you know I think that's sort of an interesting way to. But anyway, you were saying. Oh yeah, but basically because of what you're saying. It was. It stood out to me that the Jazz are such a large outlier compared to any other team in the league right now. Again, the to take this a little further, threes are the reason why that's happening. The Jazz are hunting threes in transition like no other team in the league. And in fact, like very few other teams in recent history, per some second spectrum data that I got via sauces, which are very nice. Thank you, sauces. The This goes back all the way to 13-14, which is the earliest we have tracking data for. Three-pointers attempted in the first seven seconds of the shot clock, which is a reasonable proxy for transition. It's not perfect, right? But it's it's decent within those stats that we have available. The Jazz are the eighth highest of any team per 100 possessions attempting those threes going back to 13-14. The only teams ahead of them are multiple iterations of the Rockets, multiple iterations of the Bucks, including this season's Bucks. Uh, and and one iteration of the Warriors, 16-17. Mm-hmm. Uh, no other team in the history of tracking data has relied more on three-pointers in trends or has taken more a higher rate of transition threes. Uh, the one thing is that the Jazz are hitting them at a higher rate than any of those other teams did, and that's going yeah. to come down. That is going to come down at some point, I believe, uh, for sure. Yeah, I believe they're shooting like 51% or something on above-the-break threes, which just doesn't happen. Or something like that. It's I don't very. Think it's quite that high, but it's it's unsustainable. What it's it is. very high, and although they are good, so what I'm hearing there is that what you're saying is that the big story about the Jazz is that they are sort of the most modern team, for lack of a better word, in the league. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, uh, and maybe to even take that point a little further, I would say the most well-constructed team in the league from a modern basketball standpoint. Now, that's that's not to say like. I guess the term well-constructed can be a bit nebulous, right? Like is the team with LeBron James on it, not the best constructed because it has the best player. But I've, I I hope folks kind of understand what I'm trying to get at when I You're say saying that. that the pieces fit the best. Exactly. Um, and I, I think it's fair. You can look at several pieces of evidence for this. Uh, Seth Partnow, a mutual friend of ours at the athletic has a, a chart that he's posted several times recently, weighted shooter accuracy. Have you seen that? Mike, I've heard. I know. I, I kind of understand it. The concept basically is like, how much better are you at shooting from certain spots based on? I don't think it's quite that. No, he took. So what he did was he took 
every team and he found only he isolated only for their open three-point shooting not all three-pointers only open shooting via the track what is con- and so what's considered open I, is more than six feet of distance. six feet yeah i think so and he what he did was he weighted that by team accuracy on those shots but then instead of just saying here's the team's total percentage on those shots we're going to rank them that way he weighted them by which teams get their better shooters more shot their shots more often so effectively, it's it was actually meant, I believe, in the first article that he did that he showcased it in. It was meant actually as an indicator of spacing, of for which teams create the best spacing by get and are able to utilize it by getting the three point looks for their good shooters. And in that metric, the Jazz have the best adjusted shooter rating in the league by a large margin, mm-hmm. which to me signals. And I know with this front office going several years back, this is the culmination of a vision for them in a lot of ways. When Rudy Gobert first started kind of breaking out in the early parts of the Quinn Snyder uh, era in Utah, I know there were folks in this front office who immediately started visualizing this kind of a team around him. Four capable ball handlers and shooters who are also reasonably capable defensively. They can't just all be turnstiles all centered around Gobert's ridiculous powers defensively and his powers as a role man, which is his one, well, he has two elite offensive skills, role man, offensive rebounds. They, they built that entire thing around him. And for several years, they've been trying to hit the optimal version of it. We obviously know you can't just like choose the players and making a team in the NBA is hard. You have to Mm -hmm. comply with the CBA and such. But this year I feel is in many ways, the culmination of that last year, it took some time to get the group together. Conley in his first place in besides Memphis in what, 13 years or something like that. A lot of adjustments and things like that. Plus they exactly had some, 13 years. Yeah. Plus they had some weird injuries at times. And then of course the COVID stoppage this year, it's come together in a way that I think some in Utah have been hoping for, for a couple years. And yeah, right. the, the way you put it as far as the most modern, I, I like that. Yeah. I mean, when I hear you talk, it, it seems to me like the, the real, analog historically to what they're doing is more the sort of seven seconds or less D'Antoni sons, except if you sort of divided playmaking among a number of players rather than putting it all in Steve Nash's hands, where Gobert is playing a version of the Amari Stoudemire role, uh, a very different type of player, but a version of it. But it, it, all of this stuff that you're describing, I'm, I'm curious, I want to drill down a little more on the, vir- the vision and how this is the culmination. I feel like for most people... This kind of team has kind of been the Jazz for a couple of years now. Certainly since they sort of stopped really relying on the Derek Favors, Gobert combo. This has kind of been like what the look and feel of the Jazz has been in some version for a while. And they didn't really change personnel this summer. It's basically the same main guys now, I guess, with Bojan Bogdanovic healthy again. In terms of what you think the big story behind why it's so different now compared to this time in the bubble last year, what do you think that reason is? You know, this is going to sound, especially to the more analytically inclined folks listening here, this may sound a little pithy to some degree, but I really do think that comfort and continuity play a big role in it because, frankly, I think if you gave Quinn Quinn Snyder some truth serum – he would say he wanted to play this way last year and it didn't quite get that way. The, for instance, the transition thing that I was just talking about the jazz have several guys that are not huge on that. Generally 
Joe say, Ingles is the when, perfect example. When you say that, you mean they're they're just not the running part of the Yeah, transition. they're not the type okay. that just that get a rebound and instantly think I'm going to push the ball and try and create an advantage and create a wedge and you know and and make something happen offensively. Joe Ingles is a great example. Like he's just when Joe Ingles gets the ball in the backcourt, his idea is we're going to slow this down. I'm going to set my pieces up, run my pick and roll. I'm going to do my thing. There are a few others that I think fell and especially when they were playing favors and Gobert together for several years. Obviously, that wasn't the case last year. I do think that part of it was a big one for them getting adjusted to just in general, like that as an ethos of particularly the three pointer part. I think there are several guys, Mike Conley, frankly, was one of them who weren't comfortable, at least initially with the idea of like, I'm jacking up a shot with 18 on the shot clock and no one under the basket to rebound. I'm shooting a three that might be partially contested. Like for some of these guys, that was just a big adjustment from what they'd been doing in their careers. And I think Quinn realized early in the year, the jazz, if you remember the jazz have had several straight years where they started weirdly. This is the first one where they haven't. Actually. Yeah. Right. It, it seems like every year they're like kind of, eh, well, how does this really work? And then suddenly February, March rolls around and before you know it, they've won like nine in a row and you don't realize it. And we're asking the same question every year. Like <laughs> how serious do we take this? It's just now it's still happening in, the, in what would be the middle of the season in a normal year, but just this year it's the beginning. Yeah, so to your true. point, yeah, it's sort of an interesting, that is an interesting thing that's happened with the jazz are not fast starters. No, they're usually not. So I think the big difference between last year and a year like this is, and I don't know this for sure, but I feel like at some point early on last year, Quinn had to pull things back just a little. He guys were taking his, I want to go faster mantra the wrong way. Like Donovan Mitchell was taking it to mean I should dribble into three guys when I'm running up the floor, because that means I'm going faster. Like at times, not, and that wasn't every time obviously, but like, I think he realized not just in the transition thing either, but also the pace of their offense in general, how willing they are to just shoot when it's open early. Doesn't matter what time is left on the shot clock. Also just how quickly they're getting into their offense. I know these aren't like, I don't have statistical metrics to show these or anything like that necessarily, but I really do think Quinn wanted to do this last year, realized that the group wasn't quite there, if that makes sense. And then this year, the, he's really he first of all he pushed it harder in the the training camp periods, and he realized the comfort is there with this group. They're all very together. A couple guys getting paid in the off season certainly didn't hurt in terms of guys being willing to to say this is my role and I know what I'm doing here. And I uh, again, it's not scientific, but I think that that's I think that's the best answer I can give you at this point. I don't know. We can drill down further into some of the specific areas that dig into it but broadly speaking it really just is that this group is more comfortable with each other and what Snyder wants them to do yeah you had a tweet and I think this tied into what I think is the biggest story of the Jazz from the outside as someone who watches a lot of their games but not all of their games and not in there you had a tweet that said like the two most valuable players in the Jazz this year neither of them are Donovan Mitchell and right, it was a, that's essentially what you're saying I assume that one is Rudy Gobert and yes. I assume the other is Mike Conley Yes. And I, I've said this at one point, and I think it's sort of underrated. You sort of touched on it. I think it's underrated how we kind of assumed when Mike Conley got traded there that he'd sort of be this type of player that would slot right in, that you can kind of use a vet. He kind of knows what he's supposed to do. He's super smart. He can kind of be adaptable. And I don't think that's really 
that misunderstands why he became such a great player in Memphis. You know, consistency is not the same thing as adaptability. He played one very different style. I mean, you remember when David Fitzgerald was his coach, he'd have to kind of get Conley to realize, like, you're the guy. You're not just the person setting up post touches for players. When you combine that with he also had some injury issues to start last year, there was a whole issue of is he coming in off the bench? Is he starting? What do you do with Joe Ingles? I think it was we took for granted how difficult an adjustment it would be to play the way he played for Memphis and then the way he played for Utah. They're two very different types of roles. And this year he just looks like he has adjusted to what that means. He is much more aggressive looking for his shot. Like you said, I think the chemistry with Gobert is much better. I mean, he he's never played with a rolling threat like Gobert in his life. He played with Marcus Saul and Zach Randolph his whole career. Those are just totally different players. And if you really had to identify one guy whose game has just totally transformed, it's his. And that's making a huge difference for them. You know, so to me that that is an encore story to some of them was probably the biggest deal it's interesting the circumstances that that's happened and it, it maybe gives us we should be looking closer and really thinking a little bit more about what does it mean to be like a vet that's a smart player it may not always mean the same thing in the same context you know memphis and utah are both successful teams but they're very different teams and i think this year conley has started to adjust to what that is yeah, I think for folks that are, you know, I mean, I never played basketball, so I fall into this camp for the, for those, or at least really competitively, I didn't. For those of us that haven't been in those situations, it can be really hard to grasp just how difficult, different and difficult the reads are. The You mentioned Gobert's the first true rolling big man he's played with in his career. He's done, it's been pick and pop for basically his whole career before this. Folks, the difference between pick and pop and pick and roll in terms of the ball handler's reads, it's what's a good metaphor for this, Mike? We got to, there's, there's well, a good metaphor. It's not even just that, too. It's also that Gobert is a much more classic, like, I'm screening and then I'm rolling and you need to set me up. Or my role creates gravity for you to set somebody else up. But Marcus Saul is like, you can play, it's a lot more like the, the, the proto version of what. Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic do, where it's like they're kind of both the ball handler and the roller at the same time. Half the time he doesn't even set the pick the whole way. Right. You don't have to come the whole way up, but Gobert most of the time, he's the idea is get contact, create a two-on-one, create a play from there. Yeah, and so I think that has been a big you, – you would see a lot of times them snaking into each other that first year, I thought, or Conley not really looking for him or looking for him at the wrong time. And I think that you don't see nearly as much of that this year. And it's evident in the fact that I believe their best lineups are actually with Mitchell off the floor and Conley and Gobert playing together without Mitchell. Some of that I do think is a bit of noise. That Now the Jazz have, or Quinn's taken on a really interesting and I think a really good sub pattern so far this year. So, and you kind of just hit on it. Gobert and Mitchell, or sorry, Gobert and Conley are pretty much tied together. I think they've only played like 58 minutes. Of, I think Conley's only played... Each has only played 50 something apart from the other while playing like 400 together or something like mm-hmm. that. And then uh, Mitchell is the one who is playing in those uh, bench units more often with favors where, but then they're, but they're doing it in a three stint format. Go bear leaves early in the first and third quarter, like five, six minutes left. 
Uh, Favors comes in. That's also when Conley typically leaves the game. Favors comes in along with usually either Ingles or Clarkson or sometimes both uh, as the Jazz's bench starts getting in the game. That group will play a while. And then right at the near the end of the quarter, minute or two left, Quinn will bring out Mitchell and Favors, bring back in Conley and Gobert. And those guys get to run against opposing teams, typical bench units for several minutes, like until the, you know, 10, nine minute mark of the second quarter and fourth quarter. And they've been crushing teams in those minutes, as you would expect. They're playing against a lot of benches. The fact that Favors and those Favors units are able to hold up against more starters or at least hybrid units in those middle periods. And then again, uh, they bring that same unit back out for like that middle period of the second quarter and fourth quarter. That's been huge for the jazz because it's allowed those Conley and Gobert units, which they're combining with the Niang Clarkson bench group that they had in Ingles, sorry, from that was really good last year with mm-hmm. Tony Bradley, who's not quite as good as Rudy Gobert there. That allows or them to just, or crucially dare favors. Yeah, yeah, him either. It allows them to smash those bench units, which is part of why Conley and Gobert have such ridiculous plus minuses. We do have to keep that in mind. It's also part of why Donovan's hasn't been as good and why, as you say, the Jazz's best lineups have actually had Donovan off the floor. I don't think that's actually saying that all, all year the Jazz's best lineups will be those without Donovan, but that's why it is so right. far. You're saying it's, it is a good a consequence of design as much as talent of the player. We're going to talk a little bit about how good Mitchell has been this year for real in the context of a story that I'm sure you're very tired of, but I'm not, which is the uh, whole beef between Shaquille O'Neal. And I guess it's really multiple members of Utah jazz. Cause there's a, at this point, it's <laughs> a prelude with Rudy Gobert. Um, but I mean, if you stepping back broadly, what we're really saying is that this is a team with a really tight, effective nine-man rotation, well-deployed, fits well together, and with each player sort of maximizing together, they have like kind of collectively covered all the bases. They have a structure that works, and it's sort of... Now, the question I would then follow up with, which is a different way of asking the same question that I think a lot of people would, is, is this a regular... Everybody sort of asks this question every year about the Jazz. Are they like kind of a regular season team or not a real playoff team? I'm gonna t- we're gonna talk a little bit again. We're gonna talk about the Shaq thing and just how I kind of just don't like that framing of how we talk about basketball in a more cosmic sense. But there is, I think, a thought that like it's a collective that works because all the parts work, and that is generally better for regular season play than playoff play. Do you think? I that- think that's fair. Um, I think it's a fair question. So I guess is that I mean like the, it's funny like watching your feed right where during a jazz game your Twitter feed because there are moments when they're not playing well where it's like god damn they're just not trying very the effort's not there they're just making dumb decisions and I get a bit hyperbolic at times on the old Twitter feed yeah but I think it's interesting <laughs> like kind of what the nature of it is because I'm sitting there looking and I'm like they play the same damn way each time and. It either works or it doesn't. They either make the shots or they don't. But their the actual effort input is very consistent. I'm thinking back here, and it's just sometimes like sometimes they're they the way that the the advantage they create does not carry over to the next advantage, and sometimes it does. Now lately, it's been carrying over a lot. So I mean, 
can I do the rare thing where I'm the local expert who says something that's actually more down on the team than you just did? No, it's not. It, it, I think that happens a lot more than people think, by the way. Well, what I was actually going to say was I think you're right about the general consistency and effort level going back multiple years. The one blip in that was last year. They had some problems with that last year. There were issues with Mitchell and Gobert. Bef- I'm talking oh, before the COVID thing. They had issues yes. with touches and stuff. And go. there were times, this was a thing we talked about, and it wasn't just me. Lots of people in Utah talked about this. In fact, it was right before the stoppage that it was some of it was really yes, severe. That is true. That is a really good point too. And, and I think it stemmed a little bit from some of the new additions and some mm-hmm. of the pressure. And but I think like the way I think of it, like that apparatus is fragile by nature. Yeah, that's fair. But th- this year has I think they've ironed they've what's the right term? Ironed out a lot of the kinks or whatever. So that you're right, it's still fragile. We there are times it breaks down. That first half last night against the Knicks, they missed a bunch of shots and it looked really bad because right. that's what happens when you rely a lot on the three. But I feel like they've eliminated a lot of the tensions and and little things that made it harder for it to work comfortably. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it, and what's resulted in it, it's so funny you mentioned the Rockets as an interesting parallel and you're talking about the output of what they produce, right? The threes. But when you watch the Jazz play, and this is true on offense, I think we, we could talk a little bit about the defense. They just do – what do they do is it, they seem to maximize like every little half inch with like sort of every little movement seems purposeful. And it's like sort of we build up a half inch advantage here, there, and then we finally exploit it. And we maybe turn our half inch and with a little slight cut, we make it into a three quarters of an inch. Uh, and you build it up. To me, that's like, and we talk about how modern they are. To me, that's the most modern thing of how they play. Like, that's modern basketball right there in that it's done over a large space, and it's less about what you do at the beginning and more about how you sort of stack up little advantages with cohesive play. That, to me, is modern basketball. And that's well, it's all, and you mentioned that it's not as much about it. The be- it is kind of, at least to me, it's about all of it. If, if any part of it goes, right. and that's what you mentioned, it's fragile, right? That's because if any part of the progression goes wrong, it breaks down. Where if, if LeBron is ISOing, there's one thing that has to happen right. LeBron has to make the shot. That's, or make the which play is or hard, make the or make the play, or, but right. which is hard, of course. LeBron is amazing because he does really hard things all the time. But in the Jazz's case, it's often several guys that the system relies on to make the right decision. Some of those decisions are simpler than others, but they still have to do it right. Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's I think ultimately what people talk about when they say like, "Is this team built for the playoffs?" Which again, we'll talk about why in a meta sense, like that conversation bugs me, but. That is the concern that you always have, that there are some moments where all the parts click and they look unstoppable. And then if one part is off, it throws the whole thing out of commission. Do you think that's a valid sort of thought where it's like, oh, we're just in the middle of a hot streak now and it's going to go off the rails? Or is this different this year? A mixture of both. So, for instance, I don't currently think the Jazz are a title contender on the same level as the Lakers or Clippers or maybe even Bucks. I'd have to think about it. Like if we were saying who are the title favorites right now, mm-hmm. those teams are in a different tier. And part of what you're saying is is a big part of the reason why. Like I feel like whether or not we say regular season team, playoff team, whatever, 16 game versus 82 game, whatever – I do think there are some very obvious areas where the Jazz will have less of an advantage in the playoffs against great defenses and great offenses than they do now. However, I also think 
that the jazz both as a group and in terms of like the kind of some of the, the changes to their profile that we've talked about being more aggressive about the threes, more aggressive in transition. Like some of those things just change your ceiling in general mm-hmm. as a team. I think they've, their ceiling has changed enough that I don't think what we're currently seeing from them is a hot streak for Well, it is a bit, they're shooting a little better than what they should mm-hmm. be, but not much. Like you can look at the nine game streak. They're really not, nothing is that much of an outlier is especially if you look back to last season when they were the best three pointing shooting wow three point shooting team in the NBA right that's it's not actually that much of an outlier so from a regular season stat like I actually said I, I really don't think it's crazy to talk about regular season versus playoffs I said before the season I think it was to Seth if I recall I said I could so easily see this team finishing second in the West and then losing in the first round not that I'm predicting that right. but I could with the wrong matchup that throws the kinks in what they do. I could see it happening. It's at least possible. And it's uh, even with how well they've started, which has soothed some of my concerns. I don't think it's out of the realm. So I think it's worth talking about for sure. What are some of the concerns that still exist? The, for me, it's two big ones. Uh, The first is switching defense, a good switching defense with big guys. The team I worry about the most for it with down the line would be the Clippers in the playoffs because they can run out, a lineup that against this jazz team can switch one through five on everything. For me, a big question would be how long it would take Tyloo to figure it out. My guess would be like end of game one, start a game two or something like that. Cause there really is, this is what we're figuring out at this point with this jazz offense. You mentioned the, the advantage, every little minuscule Zach Lowe wrote about this a couple years ago, call it advantage basketball. That's what Quinn Snyder calls it. Yeah. When you're doing it right and doing it as well as the jazz are and with the talent level they've got right now, I don't want to say it's impossible to guard, but it's re- like, even with the good, think about the Clippers and the great defenders they've got guarding that traditionally, meaning dropping a big or hedging or, you know, do any typical pick and roll defense that you might do other than switching the jazz have seen them all and yeah. nothing, nothing works that you can't stop them. They've got too much. They've got too much shooting. The floor's too spread. Gobert is too much of a threat rolling down the lane. How do you combat that switching? That we saw a couple years ago, two times in the playoffs, two years straight, they got destroyed by Houston largely because they couldn't score. They, the narrative out of those series came that they, you know, the goofy defense and all that stuff. They lost those series because they couldn't score. Uh, right. They couldn't hit their threes. They couldn't score. The they've improved bringing a guy like Conley in to help in isolation. Mitchell's gotten better. Clarkson certainly helps for those kinds of a thing. But for me, frankly, I'm hoping before the year's over that the jazz run into some regular season teams that switch a lot so they can get some practice on this. Cause I know that's what's coming in the playoffs. Uh, and then the other one, if you want to get into it is uh small scoring ball handlers, kind of like Jamal Murray, uh, who we saw last year, right. the jazz don't have great answers for those guys. That's interesting. You didn't say big perimeter ball handlers. I don't worry too much about because- that. Like, that's like what I think a lot of people say. It's like, oh, I see Royce O'Neal, who is one of my favorite players in the league. I've I love that dude. I think I think he deserves way more love than he gets. I just think he, I love the way he plays. I love the sort of improvements he's made in his game. I love that he sort of has become a great off the dribble passer. In addition to being just, he's really good at mirroring your steps. He's an amazing cutter on the perimeter. I just, I, he's like kind of everything I wish I could be as an NBA player, which is like kind of the video I'm doing on him. Yeah. For jazz yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, no, you're good. No, he, he, ben will show you why I think this <laughs> on the side of you, but yeah, I just, I love watching him play, but he is, people say to, you know, well, if he's your best defender and he's six, four, six, five, you don't have, 
a person to match up with the LeBrons and the Kawhis of the world. You don't seem as concerned about that. Why? I Here's my answer to those people. Go watch the Jazz Knicks game from last night where he guarded Julius Randle for the entire game and check out Julius Randle's stats from that game and how he did. I guess Julius, ca- I'm not saying Julius Randle's yeah. LeBron. <laughs> yeah, I guess the counter would be like Julius Randle and Kawhi Leonard is a bit of a step up no. competition. But. No, but the point, and actually you can go back and look. Royce has done a very good job on Kawhi multiple times. So we, this is a conversation we've had here a bunch. Quinn loves to use Royce sometimes on the small. I mentioned the smaller guys are an issue. Royce doesn't guard. I would rather, and this is going to sound shocking to you. I would rather have Royce O'Neal guarding Julius Randle or even, I'll even say LeBron. I would rather have him guarding LeBron than I would him guarding Jamal Murray. Jamal Murray. Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. Like it's not even close. And that the thing, the thing every teammate says about him and even some opponents, when you talk to him, the dude is a rock. You cannot move him. He is so solid. Like right. you mentioned, he's sick. I think six four is his actual height. The guy plays way bigger. He can't right. be moved at all. And for those kinds of matchups, your LeBrons, your Kawhis, that for me at least, strength is more important. You're not actually bothering those guys shot with your length. At least I don't think so. The ability to stay with them and to not be dislodged by the, especially Kawhi, the way he uses his shoulders and his bulk. Uh, I'm not as worried about that. I worry more about the way that. Because Royce, the one thing Royce isn't as good at is quick twitch guys can can get separation. He can't stay attached to them quite as easily. When you get a Jamal, a Kyrie Irving, a Steph, uh, even Howard, a Paul Paul George really is sort of what you're because, I mean, really like. The, that all that is true about Royce, but then the, the counter would be there's only one Royce O'Neal on the team. What do you do about <laughs> when you play the Clippers and they have two of those dudes? Uh, yeah, when I see when I if the Jazz played the Clippers, my far bigger worry for the Jazz would be how do they score, not how do they stop them? Because okay. I think I think Ty would figure out by like the end of game one that the Clippers should just switch everything, and that would create a lot of problems right. for the Jazz. And that goes against sort of if you think superficially about the team, it's like, well, they're small and their center is a rim protector. So they must have trouble with big wings and pull up shooters. Right. Um, and you think so. It, you're saying it's like kind of a little more complicated. You have to look deeper beneath the hood, which I think is a really good analogy for how to think about the jazz. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to talk about the Shaq Donovan Mitchell thing, both the silly part of it. And the serious sort of larger implication that it holds and what that means for Utah going forward. This is the Limited Upside Podcast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome back. Limit Upside Podcast. Mike Prada here. Ben Epstein is not here, but in this place we have Ben Dowsett. He is the editor of Jazz Film Room, the premier Utah jazz on-court expert. Uh, and the jazz are playing really well right now, so I can think of no better guests. So, Ben, we haven't talked yet about the story that I think both of us as like kind of fans who like the on-court, sort of what's actually happening and not the drama of all this, like, just don't like and but it's a story most people are talking about which is the incident with Shaq and Donovan Mitchell on TNT last week which for those who somehow haven't seen this 
they were doing a post game interview after what the Pelican they beat the Pelicans for the second yeah. straight game. Mitchell had scored thirty six points. I guess Shaq at one point during the halftime was sort of talking about how Mitchell was good but not great essentially. Like said, he should be a second or third option at halftime. Right. So this sort of he's not he's not the best. And then in the post game interview, Shaq literally just repeats essentially his opinion to Donovan Mitchell in the form of a question. And Don Mitchell's like, uh, what do you want me to say here? <laughs> Ite. Um, so that's what happened. And there's some, there's a lot of sort of implications to this sort of moment that we'll talk through. But I think the first question that I'd want to ask is actually, like, how good do you think Donovan Mitchell actually is right now? You know, just stepping all the way back from it. I, I know you had tweeted that you thought two other players on the team were more productive than him this year. Uh, but... I mean, how good is he now? Yeah, so, well, so far, first of all, the two players I would say so far have been better than him. Long term, the Jazz expect him to be one of their two best players, along with Rudy Gobert. By the end of the year, if that's not the case, well, either Mike Conley should be in the MVP conversation or something's gone wrong. Right. So, like, that. but, uh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So, what's interesting about the whole thing on TNT, what Shaq said at halftime was dumb, or at least the way he said it. What's funny about it is, they kind of at least got near a conversation that's actually worth having about Mitchell. What is which that is, conversation? Yeah. Well, I, I think, that. I think the whole question of, and you know, however you define first option or net, I think those are very nebulous terms, but the question of can Donovan Mitchell be the primary offensive player on a team that wins the NBA championship is a fair one. Like, I don't even think that's unfair to ask. I don't think the Jazz think it's unfair either. They brought Mike Conley in to play point guard next to Donovan Mitchell to help him shoulder some of that burden, you know? Like, they, I don't even think that's unfair to ask. Like, if Donovan, if we put Donovan in the Luka Doncic role, could the Jazz win the championship? I don't think so. Probably not. I don't think anyone really thinks that. And I think that's a fair conversation to have, but then they tried to frame it through the angle of, they literally, I don't know how much of it you heard, Mike, but they literally went to, he's only had 10 rebounds or 10 assists in his, in a game once in his career. So that means he's not well-rounded that like we could have said he averages five assists per game, which he does this season. We could have said that, but instead we said he doesn't, he hasn't hit double figures, which seems very arbitrary to me, but Hey, what do I know? Again, they didn't have, I'm the person that thinks rebounds and assists are very dumb stats in general. Yeah. Well, me too. I just say, see, I, I have like, I'm very close to advancing an opinion that like of the three, like sort of normal slash line stats that we've used for, our entire career, two of them are completely irrelevant in today's game. You will find a listener here. I pretty much completely <laughs> agree with you. But anyway, you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I actually think that that from a, you know, can is Donovan Mitchell as good offensively as a Luka or as a, even as maybe a Jamal Murray in that category, although Jamal gets lots of help on his team from having a, a, a Jokic type. Those are fair questions. I do think that defensively he has a lot more to grow. And at times this year, we've seen that growth at times. We haven't consistency is still for Donovan. Consistency is the biggest thing by far and how he responds to uh, when it's not going well, Donovan's response to when things are going badly is to try way harder and try to do way more, which sometimes you got to step back a little bit, do a little, especially with the talent the jazz have. Like if you're not going, chances are somebody else will be on this roster that sort of, he's still got some work to do there. Still young. There's a bit of time. I, 
I was fine with the contract they gave him. I guess that's a decent kind of way of looking at like, what do I think of him as a player? I didn't love it. I, if he were to make all NBA this year and jump up into the 195 million category for that contract, cause it's got the trigger for all NBA this year, that would be too much. I think the jazz would be paying too much for what he is currently, but you can also look, there's a guy named Zarin. Uh, I don't remember his last name. I'm, it starts with an F. You're I not, apologize. You're not talking writes, about the Celtics GM. No, 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 no. Zarin is his first name. Z-A-R-I-N. Uh, he's a, ja- a local writer for Salt City Hoops uh, who's really been catching my eye recently. He's been doing some great stuff. And one of the things he did was looking at Donovan's early career numbers compared to other great guards and wings through history. If you look at it, he's in a really good – I don't remember the guys he comped him with, but he's in a really good position in terms of what his production's been through three and whatever, three and a quarter years uh, in terms of how these guys eventually ended up panning out. I think a lot of us expected linear growth from Mitchell after that rookie season, and that was just never realistic. He was a way ahead of where a lot of rookies right. are. We kind of expected just like that's his starting point and he's going to only go up from there. It didn't quite work that way with it him. Never it's been does. more of – it's been more of a gradual thing, but I think he's still on the trajectory to being a, a, a great guard who, uh, for me, the biggest thing is whether he buckles down defensively and become like I mentioned before, they have those defensive problems with small guards. I want the solution to be Mitchell eventually. That's like, if he wants to ascend to true superstardom, like a Paul George type, that's how Paul George got to this sort of a thing by not only doing it on the one end, but also taking the responsibility right. on the other. That's the kind of thing I'm in right now. For for instance, I think Conley's the best guy when they've got a problem with a guy like like Austin Rivers was killing them last night again yes. against the Knicks. They put Conley on him and he shut him down uh, in the second half where yeah. they tried Mitchell a bit and it didn't work. So that's for me long term. That's the biggest thing I'm looking for. But I'm I'm fairly happy with him and. While again, while the TNT crew actually brought up some stuff that's worth talking about, it's really too bad that they don't seem to have the chops to do so in a realistic way. Well, it, you know, it's funny. I actually have the complete inverse view of why I didn't like that interaction to you. I mean, obviously, we both agree that, like, it was ridiculous timing to ask that question. Then we obviously agree that the in- intellect of the conversation itself was just it could have been better those guys are smarter than what they showed on tv they always are would show us that um and i mean the, the shack gobert thing, the shack jazz thing is kind of personal in a lot of ways because this goes back also to what he said about rudy gobert after gobert signed his max contract uh basically like kind of and shack is history of sort of just attacking people mostly being big little, men. being petty you know and Utah is – it's kind of, in a, some ways, Utah, as a fan base, I say, is an easy target for this stuff. I mean – We're always an easy target. <laughs> <laughs> like, the uh, the state legislator – you told me about this. I didn't realize this until we were started recording. The state legislator, I believe, passed a resolution uh, denouncing Shaquille O'Neal. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, guys, you can check out Andy Larson's timeline from like mid yesterday. So that would be like mid Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon or so if you're really interested in this. Yeah, the Utah State Legislature took time, actual time, right before passing a terrible bill about how you can carry a gun around without going through any classes for it. Just before that, they passed a bill condemning Shaquille O'Neal for his criticism of Donovan Mitchell, citing multiple pieces of evidence, including the ratings of the movie Kazam, his free throw percentage for his career. This is ridiculous. You're making us look ridiculous, guys. We make ourselves look ridiculous enough. Could you please stop? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yes. I uh, I want to read just a few lines from this. Uh, oh, you found the actual resolution? Yeah, yeah. I found the um, 
Whereas the claim by Shaquille O'Neal on January 21st, 2021, that Utah Jazz all-star Donovan Mitchell Jr., I guess Donovan, doesn't have what it takes to get to the next level, is even less accurate than his 50.4% playoff free throw percentage. Which, by the way, I think flatters, I think, the accuracy of the statement. I mean, are you saying that 50.4% is like the anchor? The threshold, yeah. (laughs) half right with this opinion. I feel like you're kind of doing the favor there. Whereas the Jazz eliminated Shaq and the Los Angeles Lakers in the playoffs in 1997 to 1998. Whereas Kazam has a 5% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Is that true? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm an IMDb guy. I never use a Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know. Whereas Shaq underdevelops his hot takes almost as well as his 1990s Shaq-Fu video game. Uh, let's see. Uh, what do we got? Hmm. Whereas it's hard to pull down rebounds when All-Star Rudy Gobert is on your team. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, whereas although Shaq's, quote, skill was being bigger than everyone else, Donovan has progressively succeeded through talent, dedication, and constant effort. Uh, is that the argument we want to make guys the whole being bigger than everyone else is part of what makes Rudy Gobert really good (laughs) (laughs) oh wait this is oh man whereas the following immortal words once spoken by Bill Walton apply apply equally to Donovan he is a champion of basketball and of the human spirit as well (laughs) wow Be it further now, therefore, be it resolved that the House of Representatives of the state of Utah recognizes the exemplary service of Donovan Mitchell, blah blah blah. Be further resolved that the House of Representatives consider making, spite of the official state, or ar- are what is that word, archaic, whatever. Wait, I'm not reading it. The the Fisher, the official state, arachnid, arachnid, arachnid. Yeah, uh, why can't I read? Be it further resolved, I that's it. Uh, anyway. That, that was quite delightful. Uh, I must Obscene. say, this sounds like something that like a college, like a university would pass when their uh, football teams in the national championship game, or like what that UCF team passed when their football team didn't make the national championship oh, yes. a few years ago, yes. or something like that. Yes. Yeah, except like even lamer and right. way <laughs> geekier and worse. Right. Like God, guys, come on, and just like espe- like well, we don't have to get into it, but especially given like the state of our society, we're gonna take time to do this, like that, you know, uh, whatever, right. like that. But yeah, we make ourselves a really easy target through stuff yeah. like that. Like- uh, now, in fairness, it was there was bipartisan support for this, passed sixty five to five, and you can't find many things that have bipartisan support these days. So kudos. Wow. Anyway, that was a long interjection to get to the point where. I actually find the conversation of like, is this dude good enough to lead a championship team to be like just boring and reductive? And why are we talking about this in January? Yeah. I just don't. So because part of the reason is that it sort of splits you into these polar spots. I mean, we have already talked about, and this is why I think it's sort of an interesting existential question uh, for Utah. We have already talked about how Utah as a team by nature is a collective rather than based on a singular talent. And in the history of the NBA, a singular talent generally is what kind of pushes through. And so, I mean, you, you may have heard of the, what's it called? The Pareto principle where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. I haven't actually. Okay. So, I mean, that's like basically the NBA in a nutshell, just throughout history. Does that kind of relate to like strong link and weak link games to a degree? Like, do you know that line? Yes, yeah, but I mean the the basic premise is that like kind of the few do most of the work, right? Okay, ultimately, and but like 
there are so many shades of gray between best player on a championship team and just kind of good, interesting player that are just so interesting to, to me to sift through. And like Donovan Mitchell sits very much somewhere in the middle of those two things. And like the Jazz don't need him to be the best player in the league to win a title. They probably won't get if that's the threshold, they're probably not going to get that. Like Donovan Mitchell is probably not going to be one of the best player in basketball. Possible, probably not. But you kind of their chance of like kind of success essentially boils down to can he be something closer to that while then the rest of the team allows you to make up the rules later for what actually constitutes a champion. Right. And so my to me what's interesting is and, and, and I think this is hard to show via like kind of numbers, you know, to what degree is like Donovan Mitchell being like the facsimile of what it actually is a means to be like kind of your first option. It how much better or worse is he at that relative to what Utah may need to get further like how is he doing on that front that to me is like actually an interesting conversation but when we reduce it to like is he the best could he be the best player on a title team like there's only one team that wins a damn title every year and he's probably led by lebron james <laughs> most <laughs> or, of the time or like or like you know we reduce a lot of the complexity of these sorts of discussions when we do that sort of analysis yeah, one of the lines that have I've heard from multiple people recently, my friend Tony Jones is one, but I know other people have said it too, so credit to all of them, is the whole line of can he be the best player on a championship team or is this team a championship team? That Even that, when you get into that line of thought as well, to go back to what you just said, only one team can win. That doesn't mean that only one team was qualified to win within a given season or that, a one, that only one team could have won or was on that level of where they had the, the capability to win. Right. Only one team won. Like last season, I think there were multiple championship level teams. I think the Clippers were a championship level team. They lost in the second round, but they were a championship level team. Right. If you, if you kind of get what I'm saying. I think, that, I think the, the interesting comparison is what do you make of Miami then last year? Because Miami, I think is a little bit more structured like Utah. As yeah. A they, where it's I'm, like, I'm, are they, are they a championship caliber team because they were two wins away? Are they not? Like, what does that actually mean to me? Like, it's sort of like, these are boring conversations. Yeah, that's fair. That's because you know? then, yeah, like, what's the difference? Like, they won the two games. If they had won zero games, does that make a big difference? Or does right. that, like, you know, and a lot of it ends up coming down to matchups. So, like, if from a broad standpoint, I definitely agree with you. Like, why why don't we just discuss what these teams and players are actually doing, and then we'll find out about this later. Right. It seems like we just constantly put the cart before the horse yeah. when we talk about it. But th- so that was what sort of bugged me about the whole frame, about the whole Shaq thing. It, He's petty. Inside the NBA is a lot more entertainment. But, like, the conversation is boring. What I'm curious about is one of the things you touched on with Mitchell a little bit with this consistency thing. It seemed to me that when he was younger, what he would do is he would sort of have – he had a great capacity for, like, kind of improving mid-game. But he would need, like, moments of failure to, like, kind of get that lesson. Like, I think back to what, one of the Oklahoma City games his first year in the playoffs. I think he – didn't he have, like, a horrible third quarter and then just close it out at the end? There was – I'm sure there was one in there like that, yeah. Yeah, so it was, like, within the game he was able to adjust, and that was, like, a wonderful quality. He, he like, kind of – but he needed to fail to see the adjustment. And that's a luxury that as a superstar, you don't necessarily have 
all the time. And what I found this year is that there's just he he is just sort of playing the old cliche that the game slows down for you and the decisions are sort of evident and obvious and you don't actually need to sort of reconstruct them in the course of a game you just sort of do that's what it kind of feels like he's doing and right now that entails not being as big a part of the scoring it entails sort of getting other people involved so his scoring numbers are down I think he had a rough start and is playing better. But I actually think that, like, from the perspective of, like, what exactly is a superstar, it's a pillar, he's getting better. I don't know if it's ever going to be better enough, but I think he's getting a lot better despite his uh, individual numbers maybe not being what you'd like. That's a really interesting way you put all that. I know both of us are interested in psychological themes within sports. I will, uh, I'll pump myself a little. Uh, uh, the first feature I ever did for the athletics several years ago, just on a freelance basis was on Donovan and how he played the drums when he was a kid and how research actually shows that those who played instruments from a young age are more, are better able to multitask and better able to learn on the fly. Ooh, interesting. Uh, That's good news because now I'm letting my three-year-old, she loves music. Now I can say that my three-year-old is going to be a a goddamn genius because of this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I connected that probably at least a bit loosely, but I did connect that to the whole, because you're right. During Donovan's rookie year, it was amazing how quickly he would get something right after having it wrong or how quickly he would learn a new skill. Johnny Bryant, who was his assistant coach now, now he's in New York with the Knicks told a story about how he taught him a play in shoot around one morning and was thinking like, yeah, he'll in a few weeks, he, we can have that ready for him to bust it out. He did it that night and scored like right. on a bat that play. He had never done. Uh, it was some kind of a Euro step that he had literally never attempted. Before. Yeah. And, and did it that lot, night and scored. Yeah, and there are a lot of stories of these athletes just picking things up quickly. What I, what I thought was interesting is that sort of for Mitchell, the learning process was failure and then success. Yeah. And more specifically, he had a, we talked and we just talked before about how like progress isn't linear, right? Like he did so much in his rookie year that it was hard for him to improve that much in his second or third year. But I think for him in his head, that was a tough adjustment to a degree. His, in his rookie year, it was like, I see a problem. Cool. I have climbed over it in 10 minutes, literally mm-hmm. in some yeah. cases. Now, that doesn't happen as much as you get further into your career. The tweaks you make are smaller. They're in more marginal areas. You're not, you're not learning a new skill every day. You know all your basic skills. You're just refining them and things like that. I think that's been a struggle for him as far as thinking like, oh, I just made this mistake. That's cool. I can get over it again on the very next play type right. of thing. He's And I, I agree with you. I think it's a very good eye. He has limited that this year. He's gotten better. He's And I, in fact, I think he was getting better last year. He's gotten even better this year. There are still blips. That's the, that's the long-term thing for him is getting that down to where he's always in that mode. There are still times. I think the first half against the Knicks last night is a good example. He was shooting badly. And instead of thinking, okay, this is a great time for me to defer and get some other people involved, he was—he clearly was thinking, I need to get myself involved. I can get myself out of this, that type of a thing. Those, those occasions are rarer, fewer and further between now. They do still exist. Uh, and I think that's, frankly, for him, that's as big of a thing as there is because you're right. He sits on this this little, this interesting area between being like a star and being like a LeBron level superstar that he's probably never realistically going to be being able to ride that line really well is going to be frankly, one of the biggest things to me that defines his career. Yeah. And you know, if you end up on the right side of that, you might, you you might appear to be the best player on a team when you're not doing as much. 
Exactly. Like, um, yeah, I think that's sort of it, it's like kind of a there's like a Zen to accepting that your actions will lead to what they lead to rather than trying to control everything. Uh, you know, th- this is a very abstract conversation, I realize, but I think it's an interesting one because when you ascend to like kind of the best uh, number one option, like there, it's very easy to look at that, I think, as like you've got to do more. And a lot of times, like y- you see the story play out in NBA a lot. Like it's when you kind of do a little bit less but make a bigger impact that you sort of cross that threshold um and i don't know if mitchell is ever going to be i would say probably won't ever be like kind of i mean do you think mitchell's ever going to make a first team all nba like i would bet no. no it doesn't no, mean like he, i was when you were talking before i was thinking will he ever finish top five in mvp i don't think so right I bet against i would bet against it like, and so the the cap on like kind of where he and the jazz go is like probably at a certain level but there's so much interesting stuff going on there. Like, why play the games if, like, kind of it's only about, like, whether you're going to... Yeah. I, I think that's sort of what's interesting about it. And it also ties in a little bit to, like, one of my theories as to why... And we'll, we can end with this. But uh, one of my theories as to why the Jazz are playing really well in this season is that I think they are exploiting what I would call the combination of a lack of attention to detail by some defensive schemes via practice time and all the distractions. And I think what's sort of been a league-wide emphasis back on protecting the basket over the three-point line, where you see – I just think you see a lot of times, like, they're really good at taking advantage of, like, kind of the help defender being in too sucked in or too sucked out, and that's where they really get you. You know, if you think about, like, every basketball play is, like, in three stages. You set up, you create an advantage, and then you exploit the advantage. The Jazz are really good at one and three, and one and three are become more valuable this year given everything going on. That's a that's a really good way of putting it. I had mostly just talked about like I put it as picking low hanging fruit or something like that. Where because right. I yeah, you mentioned the continuity earlier. They brought back basically the identical roster. Even Bogdanovich, he wasn't in the bubble, but he was with them all last season. He was. They have continuity with him. They. Uh, once they got past the first week or two of Quinn Snyder's stuff always being super complex, even at the start of the year, I talked to a couple guys in the locker room. Like, is this finally the year where you start fast because everybody knows Quinn's stuff? And they were like, so, no, because he always comes with 12 right. new things at the start of the year. I have a, a silly question. How is this stuff complex? Like, for, like looking back on it, it seems like it's based on very simple principles. It is. Um, but he, the, the reason, the sole reason it's so complex is counters. Quinn builds in more counters to his stuff than I'm pretty sure any other coach in the league. Mm-hmm. He's like, I did a video about this recently, actually. And I start, do you remember uh, from remember the Titans when uh, they're walking up to the buses to go to camp and Denzel Washington's character hands the other coaches a li- really thin playbook. And he's like, just want to let you guys know what the offense is going to be. this <laughs> season. And they're like awful thin playbook, isn't it? And he's like, I only run six plays, split, split veers, like give it or like Novocaine, give it time always works. That's the actual foundation of Quinn's offense too. There's only like six or eight base sets, but every one of them has so many goddamn counters and flips and reverses and they'll be run with different players. And it's slightly different when this guy's running it versus when this guy's running it. Like, and then what I'm told is that at least from a player standpoint, the stuff that's the most complex is you think you've got it. The year is over. You're like, we're coming into next season. I know everything Quinn's got. And then he comes in with like 14 new things that he's like, we're right. switching this, we're switching this. Like that's you just hear that year after year to the point where I've figured 
whether it's just a game or two or like weeks and months, like we've seen in other years, the jazz are always going to start at least kind of weird just because of that. Yeah. And obviously this year is different. And I wonder if, you know, I have been thinking about this sort of in the context of the book I'm writing, but also when you think about all the other stuff going on, this is a year and a league that has become much more about it's judged much more by not how you set up, but how you sort of transition between sequences and how do you like one in, it, it used to be like, I think in the NBA that like stage two of the, of like kind of what I talked about, the setup, create, exploit advantage, creating the advantage was like kind of the whole point of a playbook, right? It's to get the ball to this guy in this spot so that he can like kind of maximize the chances that he creates an advantage. Increasingly, I'm finding that, whether it's due to the space on the floor, whether it's due to the lack of practice time, whether it's due to the skill of everybody, every player, it's become much more of a, like, kind of how do you exploit the advantage league? And defense is essentially, like, kind of our, are just playing mitigation. And the it's offense, whack-a-mole. It's yeah. whack-a-mole for a lot of defenses. Right. And, and that's not to say that, like, but the interesting thing that will be kind of come up and layer on is that when you get to the playoffs two becomes much more of a the second stage becomes much more of a challenge that's because teams are keyed in on how you do that and that's when having your lebron or your Kawhi who just can be a superhuman and do things that overwhelm other humans that becomes more important and that's why i think wondering about the jazz's playoff prospects isn't unrealistic Right. And I think that the question to me then of this season, and really it's an analog to the whole league. And I think they're an interesting team in the center of it is like, how much do you have to beef up to the second part of that operation? Can you be like a B plus team in creating an advantage? If you're an A plus team at, at maximizing advantage and in the playoffs, do you need to be more than a B plus team? You know, that's an interesting question because I think in, Looking ahead, like we, we talk about all the things that are happening with the Jazz. I mean, ultimately, they're a much better version of what they have been. That's yeah. like kind of what they've been. They have not fundamentally changed what they have, been, what they are. You know, they've become a slight. And, and like if you're in a market like Utah, you, this can go into like sort of larger discussions. But like th- this is also why I hate the whole superstar conversation. It's not like they can like go on the grocery aisle and be like, ah, I think Donovan Mitchell isn't quite what we want. Let's go get uh, – I don't know, Damian Lillard or, but he's not quite, but like then we can trade him out for Steph Curry or what, you know, like it doesn't work like that. You have Donovan Mitchell's a guy you got a Rudy Gobert, right? Like that's just the economics of the game. So it's like sort of a pointlessly like kind of academic discussion of like, where do these guys rank? Because, but can you, is it enough now to be a team where you're only, pretty good at the advantage creation side of or and the defensive and the advantage sort of mitigation because like the way they play is a very Rudy Gobert is the best in the league at setup and not allowing an advantage the question is if you have an advantage can he compensate that's essentially what I think I was gonna add like a third piece like can uh, but now it's it slipped away kind of. It was going to be really good. And then it, I had a really great like third piece metaphor to it. But whoa, no, I hear, here's, here's what it was. I came back uh, and tell me what you think about this. And I don't want to make it go too long or whatever. But the third theme that I think the Jazz are trying to hit this year and we'll see A, if they can hit it and B, if it means enough when the time comes is the concept of not having structural weaknesses on your roster. The idea, you talked about their nine that they've got 
not that there aren't a few individual little, you know, Clarkson's a bit small, Conley's a bit small, and the Yang's not known to be great on defense, a few other things like that. They don't have, there's no Tony Allen who can't shoot a three in that group. You know what I mean? There's no, at least from a glaring weakness per standpoint, I don't think of that with them. And I think that's a big third piece to what you're saying is having those two things that you talked about at a high enough level, but also not having a massive weakness that a better team or a team with a superhuman, like a LeBron or a Kawhi can just pick at endlessly. We'll have to see if they accomplish that or not, but I think that's kind of part of the, the attempted template here as well. Right. From like a large, like kind of top down look, like you're just, that's just like kind of the cost of like Rudy Gobert being your franchise player. In some ways, you know, there is always a level at some point where, you know, his defensive style is vulnerable to a certain type of player. The question is, how high is that level and how much can he mitigate it ultimately? And can you do that again? And you talk about that, like the surrounding cast is one way you mitigate it. You just sort of have a cast. But yeah, I mean, it's just I think it'd be because I don't think there's anything that the Jazz can do. To make Donovan Mitchell the a top five offensive player in the league, or for Rudy Gobert to be like a top five player in the league and like a defensive like just eraser at all points. What they can do is they can kind of mitigate the parts where they're weak with everything else. And so then it it's it is becomes an interesting question. Like if those are your three stages of basketball, like the setup, the advantage creation, the advantage uh, sort of mitigation, can they be good enough in, in – can they be A-plus in some areas and then like kind of raise the advantage creation on offense or the advantage of mitigation on defense to like a B-plus? Is that enough to put them over the top? That to me is actually kind of interesting um, and that has yeah. larger implications. But – when we talk about like, is this guy good enough to be like the best player on a title team? Like, we just we lose a lot of that gray. Because that's in a vacuum, and the title is never fought for in a vacuum. So I t- I totally agree with you on that. As you say that, and I I hadn't thought of the Jazz as a test case for that. Like I've been thinking about these concepts, but I haven't thought about it from that angle before. Of like, this will be really interesting to see because I think the Jazz are definitely one of the best teams in recent years using this communal model right the 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 true non-superstar like the who would be some of the other good examples the spurs like the the 2000 spurs yeah although although like kind of this the model is sort of like retroactively applied in a lot of cases right yeah that's true like like toronto was is toronto that yeah to a degree like i mean toronto got also like there's the the issue of like kind of when you win a title do you like suddenly get this halo effect of now you're a different type of player retroactively because you won it but to your point i think i think it's interesting because of the style that they play and the amount that it relies on uh again like sort of match up like sort of advantage like sort of maximization and minimization yeah one thing i'll say that i that gives me slight confidence or slight you know that it makes me a little confident for the jazz they've played several good defenses this year they haven't played they haven't played in a series against a team that's locked in on them but they've played some good teams and by now the book is out on them everyone knows what they're doing they're shooting threes like they're shooting way more threes than anyone else and yet no one's been able to stop them from doing that so far and for me the reason is there's too much there's too much of a threat 
there's four guys always on the floor that are a threat to hit threes and teams just aren't able to cover the floor and cover everything that they're doing. I kind of mentioned earlier, if you're playing traditional defense and not switching, it just, there aren't many good answers. There might be nights where they miss a bunch, but they're still going to generate those shots and they're going to be open right. a ton. No team has been able to stop them from doing that. And we'll see if that persists in, you know, against a Lakers or a Clippers that's really locked in on everything you're doing. But I have a small bit of confidence from now that even as the scouting report has very clearly gotten out about the jazz around the league, it hasn't mattered. The, the, right. the emphasis has persisted regardless. Yeah. And what the way you're kind of framing that is like, a, and we can end on this point, like it's an allegory for the league as a whole. At a certain point, the league is playing on just a larger for kind of space, right? This is something I've talked about a lot. And given that and the skill level involved of all the players, now you're taking it so that more players can shoot from longer than ever before as a defense. Are you, is it possible to play where you just sort of stop threes from being attempted? Or do you have to do what a lot of these defenses have done and say, well, we can't do stop both the basket and the rim. we just have to mitigate the damage. And Utah is a kind of like kind of an interesting test study to like, is it possible to actually shut off the whole water or do you just have to like kind of make it so that it drips less? And They're interesting on both sides. It's really fun. Yeah. And so that's, I think it, 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 that's why I say like people who are like kind of interested in how the game is growing. I think this is going to be an interesting year to sort of test those two things. Like under what circumstance can you actually shut the whole thing off? And is it even possible? Should you even want to try to shut the whole thing off? You know, Utah is sort of like kind of a Guinea pig, into what that looks like because I think both you and I agree that they're probably not winning the title. Probably not. I'm not saying it's impossible, but like it would, I think a lot would have to go right. I'd be surprised. Yeah. And I, but I think they are like sort of an interesting, how far can you really push this style of play and this sort of new age? How far in the playoffs can you push it? How far in the regular season? Like, will it, I mean, the same way that I think the the D'Antoni Suns sort of influenced the Spurs to change. You wonder if that may happen with Utah as well. This, are they the new version of that? I'm just throwing it out there. That's it's interesting, right? And if hey, if big if if it were to succeed and they were to win somehow, the impact it could have on the league could be massive. People suddenly sitting here realizing, wait, these guys don't have anyone as good as LeBron and Kawhi and Giannis and KD. And they overwhelmed the teams that did by a cumulative approach. Holy shit. Should we be thinking about something else? And would that, I would argue they shouldn't because the jazz would be an anomaly in that case. Well, but like, yeah, that's, like be, the, uh, it, it, that's the Warriors thing all over again. I mean, they're not, I don't think they're as revolutionary as the Warriors in terms of style, but there is like no. a lesser version of that that may happen. I agree. Ben Dowsett, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Check out jazz film room is the name of the Patreon. Uh, you also do some other NBA stuff. You had a really good podcast with Joey Crawford recently, former referee, talking about mental health, right, which is obviously a very important topic in the league but also in the world at large during this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that was actually on Jazz Film Room. Uh, so subscribers get the whole thing, but I've released uh, on the YouTube channel. Just search Jazz Film Room on YouTube for everyone because I thought it was important for people to see the the chunk on mental health there uh, that Joey talked to me about. He said mental. He said therapy saved his career as an NBA. Right? He was David Stern essentially forced him to go to therapy after a major incident with Tim Duncan. He says it saved his career, and he recommends therapy to everyone he talks to. It was yeah. uh, it was a great interview. I recommend uh, even if you just uh, check out the free part. It was uh, it's worthwhile. 
Yeah, so you're doing a lot of really cool stuff. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the Limited Upside podcast. Do you have anything else you'd like to plug? No, just follow Jazz Film Room, $1.99 a month. I'd like to think I put out a lot for that, so I appreciate those that have supported me. All right, well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. This has been the Limited Upside Podcast. Podcast.